Okay, good morning again, folks. Uh, this morning, we're, the new series, as I said, is called Gardener's World. Uh, after the TV show, but not like the TV show, um, I promise we will not be spending too much time talking about gardening. Uh, I am not a gardener. I am not green-fingered at all, so I would be out of my depth fairly quickly. Uh, but what we will be looking at is pictures of Christian growth and how to grow uh, richer, deeper roots, but also uh, more beautiful and more uh, attractive as well to those who might see us. We're starting in John 15 today, whenever Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches, and that'll be where we start. But throughout this series, we'll be looking at the faith of a mustard seed and looking at uh, blossoming Christianity, as we said, but also, let's be honest, sometimes Christians frustrate us. Sometimes Christians let us down. Sometimes Christians disappoint or betray or whatever word you want to use. And I've called that one blooming Christians, okay? And you can't be cross. It's not swearing because it's a gardening metaphor. Now, today, in the services today, we'll be looking at John 15. And and my hope this morning is for three things. Number one, we're going to learn about relationship. We're going to learn about relationship, what it means to be related to God properly. Number two, we're going to learn about hardship. Uh, we're going to learn why God uses hardship to prune our lives that we might become more fruitful. And then the other thing that we're going to learn about is discipleship. Um, so relationship, hardship, discipleship. Uh, some would-be disciples aren't always true disciples. And one of the big telltale signs of authentic spiritual life is that by their fruit, you will know now, you may have heard the story of a bandit, a notorious bandit from the old west. Uh, um, well, he came from Mexico, but he came up into New Mexico now, uh, called Jorge Rodriguez. Uh, Jorge wreaked havoc on the people of Texas and New Mexico. He would scurry across the border, robbing banks, and before anybody could catch him, he'd hightail it back to his mountain hideaway in the Mexican borders. The U.S. Marshals got together and says, we have to take action. We have to do something. So they sent their best gunslinging detective down to recover Jorge and the money and gold that had been stolen. So he goes down to Mexico, goes to a town where he thinks Jorge might be. And sure enough, he walks into the bar and sitting in the corner is Jorge Rodriguez drinking his tequila. He walks up to the table, pulls out his gun and he points it at Jorge and says, tell me where your money is or I'm going to blow you away. And just then, a, a young man walks up to the detective and says, oh, senor, I am sorry, but uh, he cannot speak English. I have no idea of what you said. Let me translate. Now, that's not racist because that's exactly how this young man spoke individually. And you can't prove otherwise. So it's not, it's not, <laughs> um, he's, so it's how this one person spoke definitely. And so the detective says, yes, uh, I, I do want you to translate. Tell Jorge that if he tells me where the money is, I'll, 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 I'll keep him alive. And if he doesn't tell me, I'll shoot him right here, right now. And so this helpful translator, this young man, Juan Garcia, uh, spoke to Jorge in Spanish. And they're going backward and forth in Spanish. And Jorge tells Juan of where the gold is, that if he goes out to the uh, mile out of this town to a now defunct town, there is a little well. Uh, it, and if you go down the well, if you scurry down, the third row of bricks uh, are loose. And if you remove the bricks, you'll find $3 million worth of gold and loot. So Juan, he turns to the detectives and says, Senor, I am sorry. 
Jorge says he cannot remember where he put the money. You're going to have to shoot him now. Now, Juan was a hypocrite, a pretender, someone who seemed to be really helpful but was not helpful at all. He had his own agenda and was doing something for himself. And probably, you might say, was just as bad, if not worse, than Jorge the bandit himself. Now, one of the underlying themes that we're going to get through into a minute as we get into John 15 is that Jesus is showing the difference between fake followers and authentic followers. The difference between the genuine and the pretenders and the branches that bear fruit and the branches that do not bear fruit. And that's the metaphor, that's the picture that he's going to develop. So when we get to John 15, it's important to see what's happening just before. Okay, John 13, John 14 come before John 15. And before you roll your eyes, that's important because John 13 and John 14 are the, are the Last Supper. Okay, the, the upper room and all those things, uh, uh, Judas uh, going and, and, and going off to betray him to the authorities, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and all that stuff has just happened. But the last words of John 14 are, let's rise up and go. So the, the Last Supper is finished, and they are walking as far as I can understand, as Jesus is going to share with them about the vines and the branches, they are walking from the upper room down through the Kidron Valley, past the Temple Mount, towards the Garden of Gethsemane, where he'll later on be arrested and then go on to trial and execution. So these are the final moments that he has with his disciples as a group. And he turns to his 11 remaining disciples and he says to them, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that, he may, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And the branch, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that your joy may be full. And that, um, sorry, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So as, as they're walking, Jesus begins to talk to them about this metaphor of vines and branches and grapes. Why? Well, because it's a really common sight. As you're going through that area of Jerusalem, all around the mountains and all through the valleys, there's va- va- Vineyards is the word I'm looking for. Vineyards is not a word. Vineyards. Uh, and grapes growing um, all around. But also as they go down past the temple gate uh, on the temple mound, there's this huge massive bronze doors. And on those doors, embedded and embossed on those doors uh, of bronze was a golden vine. And uh, it was a beautiful ornate vine. Why? Because in the Old Testament, several passages refer to Israel as God's vine, God's vineyard. That is to bring forth fruit to God. That was the whole point of the Old Testament. The people of Israel were chosen. They were special. 
because they were to show everyone how great God was. They were supposed to be reaching people, but instead they kind of got all really insulated and isolated and inward looking. And there's so many passages that point to that, but Isaiah 5 is the best one. And the, the failure to bear fruit. Um, and so in contrast to Israel, the vine that, that's supposed to be bearing fruit, that's supposed to be doing amazing things for God in the world, I'm failing. Jesus, as they're walking past this, vine, this door and this vineyard and the symbolism of who Israel is supposed to be, he turns around and says, you know, I'm the true vine. I'm the real deal. I'm, I'm the fruitful one. I'm the one who's going to make a difference in this world. And so Jesus said, I'm the vine, and my father is the viticulturist. That's, that's the term that they've maybe used now, the scientific name for someone who works with vines and grapes and is a grower, a professional grower, um, or a vine dresser, as it's used here. They take care of the grapes. They make sure that the, the branches are as fruitful as possible. And so it's amazing. Jesus is walking towards the place where he knows he's going to be arrested and he knows that within 12 hours he's going to be on the cross. He's going to have been beaten and lashed and mocked in this trial and now he's going to be put on the cross. He is aware of this. And he knows that through the cross he will bear much fruit for God and this is the salvation of souls of so many. And so he says, it's okay, but my father is going to care for you. There's a vindresser, there's, there's a viticulturist there who's going to look after you. It's a staggering truth that we have a Father in heaven who cares deeply and meticulously for you. Never forget that God cares for you. Now, there's two roles that he does, the, the two jobs that a, a, a wine dresser has. Number one for the believer is that this job of the grower is to go and find the dead wood on the grapevine and remove it. Um, it's connected, but it's dead. It's not going to produce anything, but rather it needs to be taken away because that dead wood on, on, on a healthy branch is going to allow disease to come in and it's going to infect and it's going to affect the fruit. So you have to cut it off. So what does God do? He prunes his people. He, he looks after them because, and I know you're sitting there thinking, oh, it's going to be one of those sermons, is it, Jeff? It's going to be those ones where you tell us where you know, bad things are going to happen, but smile because it's all part of it. Now, when I say that he prunes you, when Jesus says that the Father prunes you, he prunes you because he loves you. He's not supposed to turn you into a pruny person, all right? You meet a lot of Christians, and they're prune-faced, and they're just, uh, they're so, uh, just, they're hard to take. But we know some pruny Christians, and they are not fruitful, but God is not interested in making us like that. Happy June, everyone, huh? Disaster. But rather, verse 3 says, no, he cleans us. He washes us. The Greek is catharizo, to clean. I think a modern word might be he, he um, disinfects. He cleans. He'll cut away the dead wood in your life. He'll manicure you. He'll look after you. He'll cut away some of the tissue. And, and he'll do it for fruitfulness. How does he cleanse us? How does he work on us? How does he prune us? There's two ways. Number one, by scripture. That's one way. He's already cleaned you by the word that's in you. Disinfect us from sin because we received the gospel, the word of God. But remember what he says in Hebrews 4. 
Hebrews 4 says that the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so God uses His Word where He'll say, okay, are we as fruitful as we ought to be? Are we living the life that we really should be that's the most productive that we can for God? I don't know if you've ever had the Word of God confront you like that. Daily, I hope you say, daily he confronts me in his word. And I read passages of scripture and I'm comforted by them. And I read others and I'm confronted by them. There's times where I go, oh yes, thank you God, this is what I needed. I needed this encouragement today. I needed this reminder of who you are. And then there's other times where I go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And I'm not comforted at all. I'm confronted. And I've discovered that the Word of God is given to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And it's all to make us fruitful. Another way, and we all know, is by trials. I'm going, oh, it really is going to be one of those sermons, isn't it, Jeff? Let's go. But trials, and I know we all hate trials. I mean, if we took a vote and say, look, can we get out of the trials? We'll call it Trexit. I'd say, can I just get out of this? We'd all vote in favor. Yes, leave. All right, we, we don't want, or we might just say, well, everyone else can keep their trials, but I think I've had my fill now. I've had enough trials. I don't want any more. Because um, they hurt. We don't like them. You know, Jesus prunes us by Scripture and by suffering. Scripture and suffering, if you want to keep the alliteration in it. But David in Psalm 119 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. God, you had to take me through a rough patch to make me focus back on you, to get my eyes back on where it's supposed to be. God will get your attention with suffering. And it is done in love. I keep using the example of my two girls. Uh, Sophie's six, Bethany is three. And, you know, every time we're crossing the road, you know, Sophie's to that age now where she thinks she knows how to cross the road, but you're still, you know, still kind of walks out. It's like, And I grab her arm and I pull her back and she goes, ah, daddy, you hurt me. Yeah, it's because I love you. I don't want you to get smushed by a car. And so sometimes in loving my children, it hurts them. But what I'd say is it wouldn't hurt so much if you listened to me in the first place and held my hand as we were crossing the road. And so God, he gives us scriptures to show us and to take us by the hand to take us where we ought to be but sometimes when we refuse to listen to him sometimes it hurts a wee bit more because he has to pull us back say oh god that hurt god that that hurt me when you did that says yes but it'd be a lot easier if you just listened because he loves us so much it's better not to live that way when he has to keep pulling us back better to give God our full attention every day and let him cleanse us with the word but if scripture doesn't always get our attention maybe suffering will but please I I don't need to be thinking well I don't want to be fruitful then if this is what it's going to cost I don't want this that's not the idea behind this he loves you too much to leave you that way he's committed to your growth he's the vine dresser he's the viticulturist he wants you to bear fruit for him So he's going to be walking past you every day and and, and going with you and saying, okay, 
if I, if I clip here, if I work here, if I do something here, maybe I can provoke some growth. If I can provoke more fruit, I want to I wanna see this branch bear so much fruit. And here's where I do want to warn you. Be very careful then that you don't call something bad that God means for good. Sometimes you'll say, oh, why do bad things happen to good people? And even we sang the song, oh, what the enemy means for evil, God works it for our good. Yes, but sometimes God is the, th- is the one who brings the hurt into our lives. You need to be careful about this. God is sometimes the one who brings it. And, and so we need to be careful because if you start defining yourself, well, I'm a good person. Why do bad things happen to me? Be careful about what you start deciding is good because Jesus said there's none good except our Father in heaven. That rules us out. We're imperfect people. And then also be careful about what you call bad. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brother. He's in prison for years. He was accused of rape. And then he became prime minister. And of all the bad stuff that was used by God to bring him to a different kind of place, and when his brother's name again, he says, Yes, all that panic and all that. He says, No, no, listen. What you intended for evil, God meant for good is where that line from the song comes from. But God is allowing that to happen. God sends the trials because he's a loving father who's wanting to draw us into fruitfulness. So be careful when you start assigning something like, well, I don't see why that should happen to me. It's bad. Feels that way, I'm sure. But just wait till you see the grapes coming. Wait till you see the fruitfulness. Wait till you see the fruit just starting to pop out because you've got a father in heaven, a wine dresser, a husbandman who is after your best interest. And that's why all things work together for good to those who love him and are abiding in him. And listen, for me, the hardest bit of the Christian life, without a shadow of doubt, the hardest bit of the Christian life is that gap between getting pruned and waiting for the fruit to come. That length of time, that's the hardest bit. That's the hardest because I'm saying, okay, God, that happened half an hour ago. Where's the fruit? That happened yesterday. Where's the fruit? It happened last month. Where's the fruit? It happened last year. Abraham and Sarah, it was 10 years before they had a son. And that's the hard bit, the waiting. Sometimes we struggle with the Father in heaven because of that gap. But Hebrews 12 says, my son, my daughter. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So even whenever the Father's pruning us, we may say, God, this is hurting. Why are you doing this to me? Because he loves us. Because he loves us now verse 2 again because that, that, that's one part of the job there's another part though because while that is the case for the believers where he prunes there is one who is bearing fruit that he will prune the ones that bear more fruit there are those then who are removed totally and verse uh, 2 is one that's used by many to say see you can be saved and then get kicked out God can come along and say nope you're not a good enough Christian I'm kicking you out I'm removing you is that what this verse is teaching? See, because what we're asking is, given what Jesus clearly teaches in the Gospel of John, can a person be born again, John 3, and then lost? 
can a person be a child of God through faith and then lost? Can a person be one of Christ's sheep, in, like in John 10, and then not be his sheep any longer? The answer is no. Jesus labors to teach the opposite, especially in the Gospel of John. All right? And in John 6, we, we read, uh, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has, been, all has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Fairly clean copy. Or in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Praise God for those anchors that we can cling to in Scripture. So then, how do we get verse 2 worked into our heads then? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he will take away. The key is to realize that throughout John, there are pretenders. There were believers who were not true believers in chapter 2. There were disciples who were not true disciples in chapter 6. And there were people who, who mingled in that crowd who followed him, who followed with interest, but they weren't committed. There was the 12, and one of them was a devil, Judas Iscariot. Jesus knew from the beginning, even when he chose him. And in the same way, there are branches that are not true branches. They are in him, but they're not really in him. The best example is John 8. In John 8, verse 30, it says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And in verse 31, he says, the Jew, To the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. But when you get to verse 37, Jesus says to these so-called believers, the same group of people, he says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. In other words, you're going through all these outward emotions, but it's not real. It's not really hitting home with you yet. So this is not a, about um, bad Christians getting kicked out or some sort of low-level, immature Christian as who, who hasn't been discipled well or taught well enough. This is the so-called belief of someone who's just after a thrill. I'm, I'm going to go to church because the music gives me goosebumps, and that's why I'm going to go, because that's what I'm looking for. I says, well, that's not real faith. He says, oh, well, I, I, I want to see the miracles. I want to see things happen. I want to see... Right, well, that's, that's not real faith. And yet these kinds of people Jesus is talking about where they are, have some sort of attachment to Jesus but not a real attachment. They're not abiding. And the same is true of uh, John 6. Verse 66, John says, After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There had been a kind of disciple, a kind of belief. But they had fallen away. And Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciple. So the answer to the question is, can a person be born again and then lost? Can a person be a child of God through faith and be lost? Can someone be a sheep and then no longer a sheep? 
Can you be a disciple, a true disciple, and then not a disciple? My answer is no. The branches that are broken off are the so-called believers of John 2 and John 8, the so-called disciples of John 6, and, and Judas, of course, as well. They're in me, but they're not really in me. They're following the crowd. The outer appearances look the part, but they're exposed because there's no fruit. And the explicit link between that and verse and John 15 is verse 8, which we read at the start. Verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Parallel with John 8, 31 says, If you abide in me and my word, you're truly my disciples. Abiding in the vine doesn't make you a true disciple. Rather, it proves that you are one. Your fruitfulness is a proof of salvation. Go back to verse 5. And I'm sorry, I know we've been bouncing around a lot there, but it's important that we get that information that we don't just take a verse and then we build all our theology around one verse out of context. We have to kind of put it in its right place. But verse 5 says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, so that kind of verifies what we've been talking about. Now, here's where we are as believers. I am the vine, Jesus says, you're the branches. So do you know what that means? We are our twigs. Says, oh, no, not, not that twiggy. No, although, to be fair, I would love to be that kind of a twig. It just isn't really for me. Um, that's, that's the wrong one altogether. Truth is, compared to the vine, twigs aren't all that impressive. Branches aren't all that impressive. It's nothing really to brag about. Twigs in a vineyard are for nothing. They are good for one of two things. They either bear fruit or they're for burning. Because grape wood is bad wood. Nobody builds anything with it. No carpenter worth his salt will touch it. You can't carve it. it it's too soft. It falls apart. Uh, it's no good apart from kindling. It's not bearing grapes. It's for burning. And so here's the thing. For us as Christians, for those who are abiding in God's word, our usefulness isn't about being a twig. You don't go around and say, oh, I'm, I'm a really big twig. I'm, no. Our usefulness comes in the fact that we are connected to the vine. When we're connected to the vine, when the life of Christ is flowing through you, you will produce fruit. It's because of Him, not because of who we are. And when we're connected to Jesus, He'll change the world through us. The sky is the limit for those who abide in Christ. That's why Jesus said in John 14, in the upper room, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do. That's an incredible promise. Think about that. Stay connected to him. Abide in him. The word in Greek is uh, mino. Mino means having a close, intimate, consistent, living relationship with him. You can tell somebody has a real relationship with Jesus. Hi. By their fruit. People who are in Christ are different than everyone else. You know, if you're having to go up to a tree and say, Oh, that's an apple tree, how do you know? Because there's apples in it. You don't have to look too hard. It says, Oh, well, this is that that's a grapevine. How do you know? Because there's grapes everywhere. Alright, okay, I see, I get you now. It's not hard. It should be self evident by what it produces. But what is that fruit? Well, we'll talk a wee bit more about that tonight, but even just off the bat, I'd say the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, and all that. 
It's an internal witness that we are truly saved because we have that love, we have that joy, we have that peace, we have that kindness, we have that gentleness, that tenderness. We have that. We see it in ourselves. That's just a starting point. See, fruit is natural. It's produced naturally. You ever go past a fruit tree and you kind of see it sweating a wee bit? Or you kind of listen into the trunk of it and you're going, apples, oranges, boom. That's not how fruit trees work, you know? They just, the branches, they're just there, they're connected, and the fruit comes. At the right time, at the right season, the fruit is there. And look, I don't want you to take this wrongly like I'm trying to abuse grace or anything like God there, but listen, Christian, relax, rest in Him, abide in Him, let Him do the work. Don't get worried about this or that or there. Just abide in Him. Just hang out there in the vine and you'll bear fruit. That's why in verse 5 he says, without me you can do nothing. You can try. You can try and boy, don't we try. But that fruit is a natural result of being plugged into Jesus and abiding in Him. Fruit without Christ isn't going to happen because He is the vine. He provides and sustains the life. That's huge. That's really important just as we finish. Never ever think that God's only rule in saving you is to get you in through the door. And then that's it. Then the rest of it's up to us. And I hear Christians all the time and they talk about, oh, I really have to work on my patience this week. Or, oh, my New Year's resolution, I'm going to work on being more generous. Or I'm going to try and get my temper under order. And says, look, listen, I understand what you're trying to say, but you don't understand that it is a fruit of the Spirit. And that comes from God. It doesn't come from you missing the point altogether. Philippians 1.11 says, we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's Him. He makes us patient. He makes us generous. Amen. And because the more that we have our eyes on Him, the more that we abide in Him, and the more that He abides in us and fills us with His life, we just naturally become more patient and tender and caring with people. Because if it was all about us trying harder, if it's about us then, what that does is it pushes us towards legalism again. It pushes us away from Christ and towards ourselves. Where it says, right, well, I have to try harder. I have to try harder. I have to do more. And we make it about ourselves and less about God. It's not about us. It's about Him. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians, why we read at the start, saying, all that I might know Him. Everything else I'm counting as lost for the surpassing worth of Him. So often in churches we talk about results. And we want results and we want big results in numbers, but you know, mach- machines can produce results. Robots can produce results. But only something that is living, something that is alive, can produce fruit. We are alive in Christ. And so it is Christ who will produce fruit in us if we abide. Or he will prune. He will expose us. Folks, I wonder when you look at your life, how much fruit is there? Or is your life this kind of constant battle of pruning 
and then getting angry with God and taking the huff with God and then sort of maybe leaving the church or coming back to a different church. And, and there's this kind of cycle where you're always kind of running away from God because you don't really want him to do the work that he has said he will do. what he's doing. He's doing it in love and he is doing it with care and I don't know how long it will take but there will be fruit for it. That is the work of God in us and as hard as it is to accept sometimes it is for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father <laughs> it's not always easy to hear that sometimes these trials and sometimes the sufferings that we go through are something that you have sent our way because so often we feel that it's your job just to keep us out of the trials and to keep us out of suffering and yet Lord we're told clearly that that is not always the case but rather you are trying to create in us a, a way for there to be more fruit cut out the dead with the things that do not help but only hinder us and yet it's those things that we so often want to cling on to Father I pray that you'd help us give ourselves over to you that you might work in us according to your will but Lord I would also pray for those who are here this morning and they, they have for so long been very good at pretending that they are in Christ they, 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 they try really hard to, to, give, uh, to create this impression of, of fruitfulness. But it's so forced and it's so hard and, and they're looking for attention. They're looking for reward. And it's not really there. Lord, I pray that this morning this would be a wake-up call for them. Lord, that, that if they're not really abiding and they're not really going to fool you. Because you know those who are yours. So, Lord, I pray that this would be a wake-up call, Lord, that there'd be no more pretending in our church. No, no more just pretending to get by and pretending. And we've almost convinced ourselves and everyone around us that what is fake is, is, is really authentic. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you'd work in us. Lord, that it might be said of each and every one in church this morning that you are the vine and we are the branches and we're bearing fruit and more fruit and much fruit for you. And we pray this in your name.